Hello, and welcome to the Dicer Screaming Podcast once again. Yes, we <laughs> return. I'm Randy. I am Mike. It's been proven. Yeah. It, it's not alleged anymore. <laughs> oh. Uh, oh, I'm still paying off the settlements now that I've had to totally, you know, accept that there's no way to dodge that claim. Uh, all, all claims of my Mikeness have been proven uh, in a court of law and in accordance with their findings. I, <laughs> I have to settle. So, well, I'm, I'm glad you, you're able to lose those. So, so. <laughs> well, Lord knows everybody else dealing with me has long ago settled. So. <laughs> that's true. You know, uh, on hindsight, I think that's an important lesson for us all. We have all had to settle with allegedly Mike and <laughs> actual Mike. So. so, yeah. So, uh, welcome. It's been uh, post Marmalade Dog local convention here just a little bit. Yeah. Winter. I was completely out of the loop. Uh, I wasn't paying attention, and the exact dates for that slipped right past me. And I'd been looking forward to it this year, too. Uh, yeah, I finally got to get uh, shake hands with me face-to-face with Larry Hamilton. I was going to go to his garage yeah. last year. Things uh, for the family didn't work out well, so we had to kind of cancel. But, yeah, Randy was planning to follow you, but he didn't want to die. Right. Uh, you know, I had a nice little <laughs> scenario all wrapped up. I'll, I'll probably do it again uh, some other time. So, I mean, you know, no no work is wasted as far as I'm concerned. Oh, of course not. However, uh, but bless you, Marmalade Dog, one of the best tiny, you know, one of the very best of the, you know, like, mini cons. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Well, Michigan has a bunch. We, it was like one step away from being Warp Con. Warp, warp Con, yeah. Really? Western area role players. That's, that's what it was originally stood for. But when they went larger, they drew from a hat. And it was some guy's band. Let's just say that I was less than pleased. But hey, well, I miss the days of uh, the music festival. At, it's good to see the old Western. gamer guild tag still being oh yeah uh, bandied about. Well, they they had a music festival years ago called the Barking Tuna Fest. Yep. So it, it's kind of a tradition around Western's campus to have crazy freaking names. You know, it's marmalade dog or the barking tuna fest and that was all going on in the, the 90s so it's pretty hip time yeah but they you know um post uh i blame it on all the acid post covid it was the the uh, dealers hall was kind of nice it was small but it was very well done and, uh, kudos to many dealers who showed up so yeah I think anytime up- you're at a con you know always always support your local folks uh, we got to meet some new people I spent time in the uh, probably too much time in the battle tech pods, <laughs> which yeah, you may recall from the uh, battle tech episode. We talked about how much we love those pods, and that's the part I'm really kicking myself for because uh, I really wanted to get in there and mix it up again, and now I've missed my shot. Stomping around ah. in, in an atlas, going, "I shall send you to Odin." Aww. Man, that guy with a mad tattoo. He was all over the place. No. The mad, mad cat too. Yeah, you know, the upgunned uh, mad Ooh. cat, like it's up there. But yeah, he he was quite uh, built decliners. Um, <laughs> but yeah, stomping around in Alice. It was a good time. I uh, family over there too, and uh, we uh, we the whole group, the whole gang went over, and we were in our shirts with the gamers guild, and they were like, oh. Oh. We're expanding, and I'm like, no. Little do you know that you, I started you. 
Because <laughs> we had Gamers Guild back, what was it, 83? Yeah. All, all day filed a... Uh, still owns copyright for Gamers Guild. Uh, although we did pass it on to a friend for a while. And then uh, he started a store with it. And, uh, later, that's went back and... To, uh, that's been remiss. But uh, yeah, Gamers Guild of Battle Creek has always been uh, our kind of call sign. Yeah, circa 1984. Uh, so that's how long ago that goes back. No, it is 83. 83. Oh my gosh. Uh, I still have copies of the original newsletter slash magazine. Uh, yeah, we actually got four of those out. Um, I've been informed, of course, that uh, we should put those up. But man, you know, there, there's some cringe in that. Yeah. Oh, all right. I, I forgot to mention that part. You know, like, remember, <laughs> even under the most ideal of circumstances one has to recall that this was created by people between the ages of 13 and 15 yes so uh, while the dedication was incredibly admirable i mean and, and is to have been applauded okay uh the delivery was decidedly less than perfect so that that final product uh you know, not not exactly the stuff the glowing recommendations are made of. Yeah, but you can expect no less from the podcast, though. <laughs> well, the low-rent mini-boss of gaming podcasts. Star bad the week. Or the, you know, five-hit dice bugbear chieftain just has some, you know, hit points and, no, and a little bit of treasure. DM didn't even give the Gabor guy a name. Yes. You know. <laughs> bugbear chieftain number two, you know, yeah. <laughs> yeah. But you'll remember that five-hit dice. Bugbear. Hey. Oh, man, he packed a wallop. Yeah, uh, hey, I'm not saying there's no substance there. Just saying, not as memorable as one might hope. <laughs> That's us. Story of our lives. <laughs> so, yeah, uh, our Critical Role podcast doing pretty well. Glad that uh, some folks had it. Got a little bit of feedback, not a whole lot. Uh, a couple people uh, said uh, some stuff about us being too critical of Critical Role. Which okay, yeah, we had we oh, did fair. hype it up that we were going to be uh, gushing about it, but so I think with that we prepared ourselves to kind of go for something to pick at, and it is telling that you know we worked really hard at it, so I guess that's why we spent some time at it because when you get some mental traction with that, you know, getting on into the grit of things where there was a little bit of controversy and stuff. Yeah, and I, I got to give it to them; they they may be right there. Uh... Like there may have been too much of a negative aspect, although uh, there was only one negative that I completely agreed with, like where I, I felt like they had a point. Mm. Uh, and the other one, I, I honestly saw that as a moment to debunk negative criticism. Yeah, we did. I, I acknowledge that it exists, but I didn't agree with it. Yeah, a lot of people uh, kind of also put up the erasure fact that they erased a lot of, a lot of their past misdeeds or that. But I think that's just appropriate to the fact that you have to take care of your community and you always want to have your best side showing. So I don't yeah. really fault them for that. I, I'm not going to give them too much flack on that one because if a bunch of people come to you uh, and they say, well, like this shouldn't represent you, you should get rid of this, this is wrong, you know, don't do that. And then they follow through. And they're kind of in a no-win situation. If you get rid of the thing that people don't like, then they're mad at you for getting rid of it. Uh, and if you keep the thing that people don't like, they're mad at you for keeping yeah, it. Yeah, and that does seem uh, to sum up Critical Role that, nicely. Like, you cannot win. There is no circumstance where you will ever be okay 
and the point is just to hurt them as much as possible and in as many ways as possible which that's not a fan that's that's actually a detractor and that is not your target market audience so uh you know if you take advice from people who hate you and don't listen to you and want you to disappear you will eventually wind up disappearing uh, if they're taking advice from the people who do come back and do pay attention and do love the show that's the audience that they should be working their way to please so i i don't see a lot of i don't see a lot of error in their choice making there i don't think it's disingenuous either they pretty much announce like yeah we're totally doing this this is what we're doing it's not like at four o'clock in the morning uh you know some stuff disappears off the internet and they we don't even know what you're talking about never happens in tweets yeah so <laughs> so yeah it, it's that's a lot more above the board than like uh you know uh, like russian embassy reports well, okay uh yeah so um joe decided to call in which we always appreciate joe calling in sweet here for me and so he gave us some his thoughts on our take on critical role so take it away joe Okay, boys, let's talk Critical Role. So when the actual play first came out all these many years ago, I watched the first few episodes and sort of bounced off of it and just was like, yeah, whatever. Then the cartoon came out recently, and I love the cartoon. I fell in love with it. I think it's amazing. It's very similar to the way I run games, so I really appreciated seeing that <laughs> in a cartoon. That pumped me up. Wasn't a huge fan of the character Percy. I feel like Percy is an anime boy in a fantasy world, and I think they spent too much time on Percy's backstory. But overall, I think the cartoon is amazing. I can't wait for season two. As far as Critical Role changing the way people play, I don't know. It certainly exposed a bunch of people to the game, but I don't really know if it changed the way people were playing because I think the game was already heading in that direction, and people were already playing that way before Mercer came on the scene anyway man great stuff peace out all right thanks for that joe yeah i agree pretty much most of what you said four out of five would agree again um oh yeah, yeah i don't think we were trying to say that they well, I, I think what we were trying to get at maybe uh got off on the wrong foot was that uh, critical role helped open people's eyes to a different way of playing as a DM as a central role. And yeah, maybe the game was headed that way, but I also think that it was, it really opened the door and opened people's eyes for it. And uh, put, for the first time, I think the DM is kind of a superstar of, you know, the game. You know what, fair point. I, I can't recall another DM so famous that wasn't one of the makers of the game. Right. Okay, I mean, outside of the actual staff uh, of TSR, I can't recall a DM being particularly famed other than that little freaky Crypt Keeper Toad looking dude that was in the cartoon. Uh, oh, that guy. Yeah, the, the dungeon master from the like 80s cartoon. Uh, you know, <laughs> hated that guy. Yeah. Uh, but. Yeah, no kidding. Now. You know, Mercer, for all his faults, whatever they may be, uh, has, he has kind of radically transformed the impression of, like, what 
what to do to be a at least reasonable, competent, thoughtful DM. I think it's an attainable bar. It may for some be a little high, and I think there's that criticism again creeping in, but I don't think it's impossible. And for the most part, the best compliment I ever got is like one of my uh, group players, like, he reminds me a lot of you. And I'm like, oh, what? Huh? I, I, I'm not worthy. I have the imposter syndrome there. Like, yeah. It's like, well, I, I don't know what to say to that. I can't take compliments. I oh, I totally can. I've been given some terrific praise over the years, and I happily lapped it up. I, I was very pleased. Uh, but it's all with a grain of salt, because you do something for 35, 40 years, and you really ought to be, like, semi-good at it by now. And Mercer is younger than we are. Okay. Yeah, yeah. And yeah. he's burning up the tracks. Okay. He's doing a fantastic bang up job. The guy's right in his zone uh, and good for him. But, you know, I feel like we would be in dire straits indeed if nobody <laughs> praised us after this long. Like, can you imagine? Like, there are people who, if the only thing they did was, uh, you know, like, uh, I make cheese sandwiches, and then you only make cheese sandwiches for 40 freaking years. By that time, you should make an incredible cheese sandwich that people go, my God, that is the best cheese sandwich I make sandwich eight I types of had. cheese sandwiches. Yeah. Would you like Pepper Jack? Would you like Monterey Jack? Yeah. Oh, oh, man, I just gave myself a flashback to the Borough Market in London where the guy sold toasted cheddar and onion sandwiches. Right. And they were insane. Wow. I, I'm not, they were literally, when I got home, I was looking up recipes for this and I found the like Zagat's Guide rating, like the, the tourists, <laughs> like somebody had rated the best cheese sandwiches wow. in the world. And as it turned out, I'd had like number three there in the borough market of London. Wow. I'm still trying to recreate it. Hell cool. Yeah. That, have... that, that's a, that's a mark. So Thanks. I guess like, you know, we'll take, we take it. I just yeah. have, I've always had an imposter syndrome when it comes to praise. Like, I don't know who I am. <laughs> I'm you, just what, egotistical enough that I'm like, yes, praise more. It's like sunshine, and I want to get a tan. Mm. <laughs> so, but thanks, Joe. Yeah, I, I'm glad you enjoyed the box, Machina. That the cartoon series is just way over the top. That way, if you play it like that, I, I need to go over it. So, yeah, I got some news for my campaign coming up as well. So, breaking some rules coming up here. Ooh, yeah, the crushing of jewels, as I like to call it. So anyway, <laughs> ow! That no, 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 no. You go back and you you have things that you hold sacred. You make a very solemn toast, and you know, or oath, excuse me, toast. I like toast too. No offense, to anybody who likes toast out there thought I didn't like toast. Um, <laughs> but you make an oath, no and sometimes you have to some, you, you have to re reevaluate yourself. Yes, no toast was harmed, and. Uh, I kind of have to look back and say, yeah, you know, I, I got to go back and crush that joint. You know, it's, it's, it doesn't mean what it used to be because you're cha we're changing people sometimes, you know, uh, looking forward and backwards. Uh, is how we ground ourselves. Oh, hey, look, man, we all go through a moment in our lives where, like, something uh, where we said, well, you know, I'll never do that. Well, yeah, I. <laughs> Honestly, after a childhood where I was tortured with, uh, you know, like, hey, eat some vegetables that we just boiled the life out of, uh, I, when I grow up, I will never eat those terrible things ever again. Hey, I turned into a gourmand and food lover, and now I make use of those things, which I swore I would never, never. be tortured with. And I, I was sure. You I ate would... some Brussels sprouts, so I'm so proud of you. Yeah, well, uh, 
Yeah. The ones I had that were prepared by. Yeah. 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 That, that batch was amazing. And if you had told me, if you had told 10 year old me that I was going to like go back for seconds on a dish like that, that 10 year old me would have laughed at you. You are all screwed up. And someday I will make sure I am not like you. <laughs> Cause a time paradox. Yep. <laughs> so, oh, man. Um, last week we did not have a foretelling of the future, but this week we will fix that. Oh, well, it's time to unveil. Yeah. Uh -oh. Last week's glitch in the Drumble. Matrix means that the Gelescopper has gone. No more Gelescopy. Oh. No longer do I divine by laughter. Today, I am the Psyomancer. What is... Now, for, for us out there in uh, the rest of the world, what is a Psyomancer, sir? Divination by shadows. Now, how cool is that? You know what? <laughs> yeah, because, well, and obviously, the shadow knows. <laughs> that just happened. Yeah. Uh, but, no, I, I, I'm gazing upon the shadows here in this room. All right. He, he, is, he is intensely studying the shadows. And I have divined from these shadows that next week we'll be talking Legion of Gold, a minute examination of the entire oh, wow. module. Which yeah, how did we miss that? I mean, just so many things like I, we're always in a rush to do stuff. We're like stumble bums falling down the stairs at 2 a.m. after the bars are closed. You ever watched a Busby Berkeley movie? You know, yeah. it just, yeah, we're, we're the Keystone Cops. Yeah, you know. <laughs> Uh, yeah, it's like that. But here is a thing that we we looked at parts of it. We referenced it clearly in the Gamma World episode, but we did not do an analysis of that entire module packet. And this time, we're going to pick it apart and extol its virtues as one of the ideal like examples of a high quality, widely usable. I, what did I call it in the, the pre-session? The it was the keep on the borderlands of Gamma World. Yep. And for a lot of us it's it looms large. I liked uh Famine and Fargo. It's also one of my favorite coming of age stories of the you know, how you ceremoniously gain membership into your surviving or group of survivors <laughs> going in getting a chicken processing plant. <laughs> Gallus Gallus thirteen. Oh boy. Well, and, and of course, the <laughs> the game master who ran it for me was, I'd already uh, played it with my friends, but I got in the ring for it. I just used Foghorn, Lakehorn, and still today I just can't stop laughing because <laughs> he, he nailed it. <laughs> I say, boy, I say, listen to me when I'm talking to you. <laughs> oh, man. Uh, Famine and Fargo was great, but that is a different module, a much smaller, narrower focus. Uh, the beauty of our examination of Legion of Gold is that we're going to be picking apart one of the classics and highlighting the ways in which game masters who want to do a Gamma World type setting or Gamma World game, this is a campaign in a single booklet, okay? Yep. It, it has that in common with the Keep on the Borderlands, and it is totally worthy of a more detailed examination, uh, plus some tips and recommendations for segmenting the speed with which players move through various uh, areas and plot points. Uh, because stumbling about 
wildly. Uh, Gamma World in the old days was a very unforgiving game. <laughs> you know, not everything here will be your level. So we're, we're throwing in that caveat, but that's coming up. Yeah, that's so, next week. All right. Well, let's... the Psyomancer has struck. May is spoken. All right. So thanks a lot for that. And so, as promised from last week's uh, listener support, James Brown wanted us to talk about some of the iconic characters of Dungeons and Dragons, as well as some of the lore. So we've dug deep. We oh, have really uh, with glee. I mean, there was a bunch of stuff that like we knew, but just doing the extra research was so much fun because it's totally in our wheelhouse. Yep. So we're going to be talking about everything from Vecna to Emmercall's the Chaotix. So we're just going to jump right in. So. <laughs> Uh, let's start with, hmm, yeah, let's start with the uh, Company of Seven, and you might start remembering some of these names. This is pretty esoteric, and then we're going to go into some other uh, more well-known names that aren't uh, attributed to the main uh, character. So cool. the first part, uh, let's talk about the Company of Seven, and this is not to be conserved with the, or confused with the Circle of Eight, excuse me. Uh, which came later, but it pretty much the same thing. This was the members of the company were Zagig, the wizard of Castle Greyhawk and all that, which of course is a misspelling and sets the trope that would come through of changing your name around or spelling it backwards. So Zagig Yagrin, the master wizard who formed the group of the circle of, or the company of seven, my apologies, and Kia Tom of ointment fame. I just want to walk up and shake your hand, Kia Tom. You know what? Yeah, that potion, just say, that uh, ointment that you have, just uh, saved my life so many times. <laughs> oh yeah, you can always trust Kia Tom's ointment to be the sovereign uh, remedy for whatever ailed you. It really had all the bases covered. Yeah, and uh, there's some contention who Kia Tom is. Now we don't know. We know that definitely Zagig was uh, Gary, and this goes all the way back to the very earliest days that, that, that was the wizard of his campaign that would be Greyhawk. Well, yeah, actually, let me do a short sure. brief preface. Yeah, go ahead. D dig into it, sorry. Um, for those not familiar with really vintage gaming, uh, the thing to remember is that this was the protean ancestor of D&D. These characters and these names and these legends that eventually became associated with the names discussed today all emerged out of what effectively was the first ever D&D campaign uh, without the name. I mean, it, like when we spoke in earlier episodes of the game Chainmail uh, evolving into a role-playing game, uh, it was at this cusp period before AD&D was formalized, like and in some cases, like the, the original white box rules were just being put together. It was in this era uh, that Gary had his own campaign running and gathered about him like... Seven the, trusted associates. Exactly. The, the people who were nearest to him, including family and uh, longtime friends and, you know, fellow enthusiasts they would play and these famous Greyhawk characters and some of the famous Greyhawk villains came out of that actual campaign and then eventually 
were enshrined uh, in each successive edition, uh, the concepts uh, that you begin to see unfold by the time D&D became first edition Dungeons and Dragons, advanced Dungeon Master's Guide and Advanced Player's Handbook. By that time, uh, they were just harvesting all the terrific material that had accumulated in the course of play. And that is where many of the, if you're familiar with the Big B's hand spells, well, those were handwritten by the players and then approved by the DM. Uh, all of those names that you hear, uh, many of the ones that we'll be discussing today are the players at Gary's table and the things that they created to make use of with their characters, and in some cases, the legends that built up around conflicts that they were involved in. Right, and so, to just kind of- Yeah, cool. Uh, put that in perspective, I mean, this goes all the way back to, Mer the next one, Merlin, was Don Kay's character. Paladin, Paladin, where do you run? Yeah, have a pair of six years. Oh yeah, Merlin. Yeah, uh, because but, uh, that character visited the Boot Hill universe in a, uh, like a, if I understood right, uh, they had a party jump moment, you know, a, a party like interdimensional right. crossover moment. In well, well, Don K didn't last too long, so that's something that they uh, put in there, and uh, he unfortunately passed away before a lot of this happened. But they kept the idea around. And uh, then there's Nosler, Nozor, excuse me, I got Nosler, <clears throat> Nozer the illusionist and the first illusionist player with his marvelous pigments yes and uh, he was quite known for being the first illusionist in the campaign again i think that is another person richie we played them in the qual qual's feather token and hewer which is also another character that has some uh it might have been another one of gygax's uh player characters uh testing out the bard and then of course tasha and a young apprentice wizard with a more of a sense of humor who actually ended up being aguila now of course this was things that they built up later like with king and others but uh Iquil, uh famous from the uh or her daughter drelzna who dwelt in the lost caverns of Sokant, the vampire that like every every old school gamer worth their salt has run afoul of drelzna at some point and man, just gonna say, uh, vamp high level vampire fighter with a two handed sword. <sighs> Not the easiest encounter I've ever been through. Well, and that, and uh, also the mother of Aya's by. Uh, oh, yes, Igwilv. Aya's uh, his mother. Yeah, in the Greyhawk campaign. But again, these characters will become enshrined in lore and built up upon by Gygax and others, and uh, they would become synonymous with much of the associated lore, which of course Tasha we will be discussing in some detail in the future. So anyway, uh, having the Company of Seven covered, we're going to take a short break and then we're going to come right back with some more deep lore as we really get into the nitty gritty. So yeah, now we begin the deep dive. So stick around, we'll see you in a few. back and so yeah we started off with the company of seven and the original members there 
a little bit of obscure, but you might remember some names that crop up like Giotams and such things. But hey, they were the early players, and there's some uh, cats in there like Tom Price and Paul Ritchie the third, and a couple others. Uh, Diesel and a few others that uh, were at the early formation of TSR, including Tim Cask, as I understand. Ah, so yeah, was uh, one of the characters. Obviously, Jim Ward. Well, yeah, well, that that did come later, but uh, but before even well, let's hold that in. Okay, yeah, yeah, we're we're headed for Circle of Eight. Yeah, so now we're going the right next into... evolution. Okay, that it like out of out of the initial game. Uh, you know, like then TSR forms properly and they start harvesting this material and all of that. But yeah, a peculiar thing very happens before so. that is in the, the uh, booklets uh, Blackmore and Greyhawk. They start covering artifacts and we learn of other names like the invulnerable cone of Arend. Who's Arend and why is this coat invulnerable? I mean, I like a good jacket, but is it a light spring jacket? Is it, you know, one of those like a Carhartt that, you know, you can wear it on a spring day and it's not going to overheat you, but, you know, if it's a cold winter day, you can, okay, I'll, I'll leave that alone. Uh, but we learned more pop. The invulnerable parka of Steve. Yeah. <laughs> no. <laughs> Pass. Queen Elizabeth's Marvelous Nightingale, the Mask of Yogi. But more famous and probably infamous is Vecna and his <clears throat> pension peep. By the name of Koss. Yeah, the Koss the Vampire uh, and Lieutenant of Vecna. I, this is one of the great rivalries, okay? They, Koss and Vecna figure into the oppositional roles that their early campaign, like the first D&D honest, ongoing, multiplayer campaign-level event, uh, coming out of Gary's brain... Uh, you begin to the see hand and eye of Vecna, the only thing that survived all that remained after Koss was done with him. But of course, there's nothing remaining of Koss except his doggone sword. Yeah, yeah, a little self destruct mechanism in case you betray the boss. Uh. <laughs> yeah, but you know, the buddy, the magic user, and his fighter buddy, and boy, it didn't end well. Well, they must have fought, found some magic at him in the tomb and just like, oh, I want that. No, I'm going to take that. Well, oh, this no. has been brewing in the background for a while. Well, Get ready, Spellcaster, because I'm about to hew you from limb to limb. Ah, uh, curse you and your seven, but inevitable betrayal. Well, yeah, as I understood it, they were both, like, unutterably evil characters. Oh, well, yeah. Uh, so, which... you know, they were always, like, the question was not, you know, like, Will he betray me? The question was, when will he finally get around to it? Because, I mean, you know, we know this is coming. We're evil. We don't share well. <laughs> so, yeah, these weren't really player characters. This was some background that you can incorporate in your campaign if you want to incorporate the eye or hand of Vecna, whichever. Both at the same time. And remember, like, out of the fertile brain of Mr. Gygax, uh, the hand and eye of Vecna were things that could only be used if you cut off a hand and put, like, Vecna's hand where yours should have been. Uh, and, of course, like with all artifacts, when he presented them, they were insanely dangerous, uh, but insanely powerful. And so it was a moment of temptation where, you know, Gygax would just place this, like, oh, limitless power, uh, without telling you what any of the curses would be. 
There was no way to gauge from the poker face whether this would screw you or work out incredibly well for you. Well, thus the price of consulting the sages, or not consulting the sages in the case of you just... I find this black-pitted short sword... I mean, it's got some kind of weird scribbling on it. I can't make it out. And the hilt's, you know, the, the hilt's like a, some kind of ram. Oh, man. Kind of looks cool. It's just a short sword. Now you have lifted me from my resting place, worthy one. <laughs> it started, and it starts. Oh, no. Oh, so it begins. <laughs> But a lot of players at Gary's table in particular learned to be exceedingly wary. You know, like, yeah. Always look a gift artifact in the mouth. Okay? They do not land in your lap because the DM likes you. They land in your lap because the DM is testing you. And be like your oh. fate may momentarily be decided by the decisions you make. Yeah. I, I, might, I might just say that artifacts were there to provide a counterpoint to players... In- unbridled lust for power a smart player can use an artifact many of these um, maybe the hand and eye and, and perhaps the sort of cost not may so not much. not so much but some of these can be used sparingly or for a limited use or purpose and you're perfectly fine with that uh, and other ones like the axe of the dwarvish lords you know for a dwarf he's really not going to see much drawback off of it you know, other than the need to try to unify the great Dwarven clans. Yeah, he is suddenly on a mission. Yeah. Uh, but beyond that, no radical personality change. Uh, <laughs> Whoa, but died the non-dwarf. I mean, unless you're, like, totally in the mood. You know what? I've always wanted to become a dwarf. Well, here you get your chance. Here is your chance. Yeah, so these, and a lot of these had personality. Now, the later editions uh, of the game would start to blush out who Arnd and Joy D was, and Queen Alyssa's Marvelous Night. What? Why did she have a marvelous mechanical nightingale? Well, you know. Because it's kind of cool. Also, everybody had probably at that point watched Bubo the Owl uh, in... Oh, yeah. Uh, what, what was that? I, I would, I would say that kind of predates that, but yeah, but when you look at it from that point of view, that, uh, that puts you in kind of a mindset of a, a gear-driven construct in the, you know, days like Geez, we were just looking online the other day. Uh, I sent uh, Matthew Schnarr a uh, pick of a calculator that weighed eight ounces. It was a mm-hmm. little cylinder, and it went, you literally just punched in little uh, digits on the side of it and then twisted a uh, gear device on the top, and it would calculate square roots and do high-end math calculations. Basically a slide ruler with mm-hmm. a few more buzzles, buzzers and whistles on it. And... <clears throat> <laughs> You know where I'm going. It's the steampunk edition. Yeah, but it weighs like eight. It only weighs eight ounces, like almost a pound of metal in gears. But yeah, that's how we use my steampunk pencil. It occupies half of a basement, but you know, does exactly what a pencil would do. Right. Um, It also requires 200 pounds of coal to operate for an afternoon. (laughs) Yeah, I know. I know. Yeah, but you know, that's. But here we are, uh, looking at. Uh, this protean era of D&D that is so precious to us. Yeah, because we would sit there and we'd just think, like, why did what made Koss and Vegna quit being bros and come to blows? And, you know, it's your head canon, man. It's your story to tell. And I didn't know uh, that, like, for the longest time, I did not know that Asararak 
the Demi Lich in you know Tomb of Horrors uh, was one of the wizard generals that served Vecna. Yeah, brought him ago. back after he was blasted. Yeah, he was the one who basically preserved what was left of Vecna and like fled from the battlefield with his commander's, you know, like fr mostly fried body. Voltus <laughs> is not kidding about that blinding light. I got a migraine. Somebody put me in a back to tank. <laughs> so, and of course, Sirak would go to his own infamy as well. Yes, yes, building the the ultimate. Uh, Dungeon of Doom. The allegory of the Vietnam War for the United States. All paths lead to dishonor or death. <laughs> Once you get involved in this quagmire, you shall not escape. Yeah, uh, like the very <laughs> uh, war game is a moment. <laughs> the only way to win is not to play. play. <laughs> do not engage. <laughs> so, yeah, there's a lot going on in the Tomb of Horrors if you really delve in. And, yeah, Asirak fits into that. There's a certain type of Greyhawk lore, and this is where we'll get a little bit more gray hockey on you. Old gray hockey and old gray hockey like. Um, there's a certain kind of thing with Kane and Fire and the old group there. Hey, uh, shout out to Rick Miller and Do uh, AKA Dewey Carson. He just kind of called in for his work on the uh, Worth Journal with Long Overdue. Mm. Uh, but. There's a kind of saying to those old Canaan Fire days where it just seems like things line up. And what it is, is that if you have a view to make things fit, it can seem almost like it's seamless. It's not It's not that the, the path was laid out for you, but you made it work for you. And you can incorporate this from that. And if you know a little bit about one area or another era of Greyhawk, can incorporate that knowledge to make something else fit. For instance, like Foltis and Vecna. And, you know, blasted by the blinding light of Foltis, you know, thus Foltis of the blinding light. And he caught most of it on one side, which is why a particular hand and a particular eye were salvaged. Uh, the other side, not so salvageable. <laughs> and after that, he was weakened, and then Koss began, the sword began whispering in his ear. You can take him. You know you can. Take him out. He's off his game. He'll never see it coming. <laughs> Not knowing that the sword is completely trying to mess with him. Curse you with an inevitable. It's Greyhawk. It's an but, inevitable betrayal. <laughs> but it's not sudden. I've been expecting this. Then yeah, so they both went out. So yeah, that's another one. The Teeth of Delvinar is another one that's always kind of hit me in a way like, what is the purpose of the teeth? And then, of course, you learn about religious relics and iconography, and it makes perfect sense. A powerful cleric of great port to the gods, you know, his teeth were preserved because that's what you do, I guess. You know, like, I guess the head of St. Olaf is still around. Although there's two of them. I guess Olaf had two heads. <laughs> <laughs> as, as so often happened with religious artifacts, uh, there was quite the. Th there was a particular era of history uh, where medieval towns had realized that enshrining a religious artifact near your town meant that you would have a steady flood of parishioners, of you know, pilgrims and travelers flowing through and bringing tax dollars. And so suddenly, literally, like every church on every corner in every tiny little town throughout the entirety of Europe had. Like, we have a fragment of the true cross 
And if you were to add all of the various fragments scattered around Europe together, it would add up to pretty much the contents of every cross on all of Golgotha. You know, just, <laughs> yeah. yeah. Uh, just it was approximately a whole plank forest. of 20, yeah, whole forest were cleared yeah, <laughs> for this one true cross. All right. Yeah. Uh, so, yeah, but, there was that iconography. I, I want to mention people will notice very quickly that when it comes to the group of seven and the group of eight, um, these characters were all wizards. Okay. Pretty wizards much. Yeah. The, the first of the seven was kind of a little bit varied, but then we get into the great Hawk Lord, the circle of eight. The reason why is that, all right. Some people said it was just that wizards are OP and everybody wants to be a wizard. It's also that when it comes to the crafting that was the only class other than cleric uh, that had well fleshed out crafting rules. And the wizards had the most well-crafted crafting rules for potions, scrolls, spell creation, and magic item creation of any character class at that time. This, this proto version, they had been writing their own spells and building their own artifacts and like creating their own magical items for their use. Uh, for quite some time and it was expensive and time consuming and it was a great way for the DM to manage their gold like hey you can invent a new spell but I mean you know like if it's going to be in level 8 spell you're going to need to burn off a very large amount of gold and determine for me what this spell will cost in terms of you know, material components and difficulty and time uh, so that became a facet of their campaign as well, the creating and building. And you see that today in almost all games that have a fantasy bent. There's always an angle of, like, you can build a this or craft a that. Uh, it was already popular then, even with that limited group of first players, you begin to see how much people loved that. And they all played wizards and they all had hirelings. Uh, they had fighting men at their beck and call. Uh, clerics from various temples and their service, uh, you know, the occasional rogue and trap checker carefully watched because the yeah, they were family members. Promise. So let's go over who the Circle of Eight is. And of course, it was founded in 569 by uh, Morden Kanan, which is Gaix's personal wizard player, or char player character, among others, as well as Big B and his brother Rigby. Rigby is not a member of the Circle Eight, although he is an affiliate. Being a cleric of uh, Bokab, and uh, I believe his uh, wife Eleanor is quite a nice lady. Yeah, as well as the wizards Buckner, Dromage, and we'll here we'll stop. And this is Dromage. Is this sets another precedent where you put in uh, uh, reversing the names of people. Dromage spelled backwards is Jim Ward. <laughs> Big brain moment there. Uh, also, Leomond, um, one Lakovka, and uh, Mike Neistel, just Neistel. Hey, Neistel sounds like a cool name in and of itself. If I had a wizard, I'd name him Neistel. Yeah, I mean, he, he apparently you know, had a mischievous bent uh, because Neistel's magic aura doesn't do anything of importance, but if you're trying to con people out of gold for a magic yeah. item that does nothing, it makes total sense. Uh. <laughs> yep, and also Rary. Um, played by one of the Broom Brothers, who would become uh, the traitor, as well as Otto, and Otto's Irresistible Dance. Ah, yes. And then later, uh, some would drop out Buckner and um, Nystal would be replaced by Odaluk and Tenzer, and of course, 
also say certain, but if you spell tensor in a certain way, certain and tensor are the same person. And of course, uh, tensor is just an analogram for Ernest. And that is uh, Ernie Gygax's uh, wizard. So everybody was involved with this in some way, uh, even a Melf who was uh, Luke Gygax, he was playing an elf. And he's like, what's your character's name? Male elf, elf. And then later, you know, being chided and derided for it, he finally, fine, my character, it's just an allegram. My character's name is Prince Brightflame. You know, oh, that's kind of cool. All right. Why are you traveling with a silly name like Mel? Well, you know, I'm in cognito because I'm a prince. Yeah. <laughs> all right. Cool. All right. We'll run with that. Good kid. <laughs> Get on here. And yeah, so the, a lot of the spells that we have that uh, bear their names have become famous or infamous. I mean, the Big B Hand spells are obviously a Oh, everybody loves a big B hand spell, except when it's a crushing fist. Ouch. Uh, well, we we certainly love uh, the you know crushing fist when it's on our enemies. Uh, nobody likes to be the recipient of the crushing hand. Yeah, and Morden Kanan's sword, Morden Kanan's faithful hound, uh, Dromage disjunction. Yeah, and Jim uh, Dromage's instant summons it brings a knight of right hand. Leoman's secret chest. Rary's monotonic enhancer. So these have become synonymous with a lot of things, much like the original group of the seven. So these are characters that they were able to kind of redline the game with, test out new spells and theories, and see how well the rules held up to intense play in actual con real play conditions, and mostly Gary's table. But let's not kid ourselves, it also was just to have a good time. And as time went on, yes, they, did, they had less and less time to play. Yeah. And so, true. they even though they were in a company making games, doing what they loved, it just wasn't working out. Well, because there were so many demands on everybody's time. Exactly. When you have multiple projects, you know, many of these people may not necessarily have started thinking, "Hey, I'm going to be a game developer uh, for a major corporation." You know, okay, they were like hanging out uh, on a college campus or meeting at houses, playing with their friends. And then, well, frankly, there was room for plenty of people to jump on board and help out with this nascent enterprise. Uh, there was money to be made, to be made for everybody. Uh, but with that and the development of the game, the larger the sales got, the more responsibilities everybody had. Uh, the wider the array of product lines forthcoming, the you know larger the number of uh, phone calls and meetings and sit-downs and preparation one had to do. And before long, uh, they honestly didn't have the time to keep up with their original campaign very often. Well, yeah, and that should be apparent to a lot of people, but at the same time, it people are like, oh, weren't they just have, just had the ability to game all the time? Yeah, Gary became quite busy with running the company, and of course the Bloom Brothers uh, weren't that one so we're going to turn to a little bit about that uh cost <clears throat> no rary no i i mean bloom brothers uh, cost to their vecna or to his vecna yeah well rary the traitor will end up killing him but that was afterwards um so yeah we'll, we'll just talk about the, the rogues gallery was a nice little addition at uh by brian bloom dave cook and gene wells and so it was basically a bunch of pre-generated stats for all sorts of player characters and classes complete with magic items, so you could just quickly whip up an NPC or replacement player character in a very short amount of time. Oh, yeah. Uh, and also contain things like uh, City Watch, Day and Night, Quarter Patrols, you could counter groups of pilgrims, bandits and buccaneers already pre-generated with treasure and 
of various leaders. And that included pirates uh, and, you know, things of that yeah. ilk. The thing that you would need large numbers to, as well as uh, liches, Quaddle, Chiron, and our high level, and even dungeon parties described in various stats so without names, but, you know. Oh, sure. But the, the point was to put together a tool that would be incredibly useful to the nascent DM of the time. Uh, you had so many people who were very young suddenly kicking off in this game who had it was a bit of a hurdle to prepare an absolute ton of pre-generated stuff ready for any encounter most people had not thought to be doing that okay you didn't write everything sure. out in advance but the real there's a book the rogues gallery that came along and fulfilled a need where the newly arriving dm who's in love with the game and boom, reference, reference, reference. Okay, here's a list of NPCs. Here's an enemy party. Here's the leader of the enemy forces. Here's the, okay, I can occupy a dungeon with this stuff. Boom, boom, boom. And hey, all of a sudden, random games become well, easy. Well, the, the, the true treasure that we're going to focus on here would be the personalities <laughs> in the back. And it revealed for the first time, besides uh, the deities and demigods, some of the uh, weirder characters that you hear about but you didn't know. <laughs> and uh, who their players were, of course, that Bigby's listed here, as well as Erot, who is uh, Tim Giardini, uh, and uh, a couple of characters of Gene Wells, Seattle, uh, Trodar, the <laughs> Northman, and uh, of course, uh, a, as, as it says, Seattle uh, RK, as he is called by her friends. As for convenience, is a slight short woman of moderate bearing and beauty. She generally wears a worn-looking clothing and colors green, brown, and yellow predominating. She usually has a bag of goods slung over one shoulder and a quiver for her wands over the other, as she is a barbarian magic user. So, how cool is that? And as well as um, some other characters like Arax's cousin, who is a mysterious figure who has never revealed his true name, was once a lawful good magic user. However, an unknown insanity overtook him, and he slew all of his henchmen and companions, stealing goods yeah. and of course the little uh, fuzzy uh umber hulk companion that he ran around with and as well as grim slade uh Lanolin, lawrence schicks uh notorious chaotic evil elf fighter magic user Lanolin. and last of in the dark by alan hammock and of course the edgy the edge lord the mysterious assassin and morgan canaan and phoebus uh, played by jeff or Leeson, as it's a credit to. Morgan oh, uh, Kanan himself uh, yeah. was uh, inspired by the Finnish epic of Lemon Kanan. Yep. So. And Robilar uh, by Rob Kuntz is presented in here, the fighter who is now lawful evil. As well as certain uh, er Ernie Gygax's character, as well as Tensor, so contrarians. And uh, Dave Cook's character, Talbot, who was a okay. druid who was reincarnated as a centaur. Ah. As well as Phoebus, who was a reincarnated as well from his lizard into a lizard man. Thus, the famous lizard man fighter, right? Yeah, yeah, uh, Phoebus. And that, then, see, that was the kind of thing that happened only so much in the first edition. The bizarre circumstances that uh, reincarnation would inflict meant that you wound up with perfectly viable player characters that were not of like standard. You know, yeah. background and man you don't see quite as much of that these days i feel like the game is missing a little something for want of that yeah and valeris uh, era otis's character who is basically a kind of um 
well, how do I put this? Uh, not a Cyrano de Bergerac kind of character, but a swashbuckler kind of with a cut of a combination of all three of the Musketeers. So that was his character that he played, and uh, he's sticking cool. to that. In addition, we're going to take a look at some of the characters mentioned in the character sheets. Uh, there's not one for the AD&D character sheets, but in the D Dungeons & Dragons player character record sheets, the classic one, in the back here we have Jeff D's character, which is Elias Oracantonian. Man, these names. And apparently an chaotic elf of third level who fought a troll and killed it to gain his plus one sword and met a band of goblins raiding the forest and owes Ulfgar, a dwarf, a big favor. And so you'd see <laughs> stuff like that. So you'd kind of get like, okay, Jeff D did that. And then... Well, we and the, the point was they were providing really accessible cues as to how they often played the game. Because at this stage, uh, you know, the outreach for D&D uh, was spreading farther and faster than ever before. And a lot of people were trying to learn how to have an consistent good time while playing this. And now in the, hey, they did as much as they could to help people. Now in back of the uh, it wasn't here, yes, the Dungeon Master's Adventure Log. We have a nice little thing here. We'll just uh, go back and round oh, robin on this one. My copy of that is so tattered. Yeah. Like every page was used long ago. I I should have had the good sense to photocopy a bunch of it and then be able to resuscitate you know, parts for new campaigns years later. I did not have that foresight at that time. So in this uh, back here, they have a sample adventure log page, and it's kind of interesting as you see Dave Cook as Fred 9802, a fifth level dwarven fighter. <laughs> I love that, like, he's, he's got the <laughs> number for the end of the name there. <laughs> Just, who are the other 9,801 Freds? Yeah, I uh, guess. How many, just... how many did they kill in that campaign? Uh, Helen Cook, uh, that was, uh, I believe, Dave Cook's wife. Yeah. Uh, she was Knock Grafton, seventh level thief. Yep. And Kevin Hendricks is Black Dougal. You might have heard that uh, name bandied about a few times. Uh, and uh, he's a ranger. One of them, they're rangers. Uh, Jeff R. Leeson was uh, Harry Furryfoot, uh, halfling fighter rogue. Uh, or thief. Or, back, yeah, so we called them thieves back in the day, and yeah, of we course, just called them what they were back then. You know, little club does thieves. Uh, Still not as bad as Kender. Steve Marsh was Elysio Morningstar, oh. a elf fighter, match user, fifth level of some a half elf, excuse me, female, and uh, Jolan Moldvay, uh, Yolanda Mirabalis, a match user, Rebecca Moldvay as Sister Rebecca. Yeah. And Tom Moldovay, when we finally find out who Morgan Ironwolf is. Yes, if you've been waiting for that, Morgan Ironwolf was a well, Tom Moldovay's character, an eighth level female human fighter. And he had a good. Lauren Schick had one of the best names. Elron <laughs> Hubbard. Yep. A <laughs> elf fighter magic or magic user thief, I'm sorry. Yes. Yes. Uh, Gene Wells, whom you may recall from uh, you know. Palace of the Silver Princess fame uh, as Lexla, illusionist of the seventh level. And a gnome. Yeah. Yeah, so um, they had a pretty impressive run here. It seems like they killed four gargoyles, a bunch of orcs, some minotaurs, and uh, ran afoul of some black dragon and a number of hulks. So oh, like, and let's not neglect their pretty solid uh, run on a batch of trolls. Oh, sorry, gnolls. Uh, 17 gnolls. 42 orcs. 
one adult large black dragon, uh, one fire giant, two manacores, three whites, uh, one umber hulk. I, man, they had quite the adventure there, man. Yeah, that sounds like a heck of a night. And uh, you see uh, right here, it reads in the unusual event, or Morgan Iron Wolf's Constitution plus one from a magic chair. Fred 9802, talk to Odin, talk back to Odin, and live. Black Dougal slain by a fire giant. Oh, Grafton pocketed a ring of delusion. <laughs> Without with knowledge of the party. And Sister Rebecca falls in valiant combat with a black dragon. Oh, what a way to go. Yeah, well, you know, if you're going to get killed better than that, then getting killed by a kobold. Oh, yeah. <clears throat> or poisoned by a giant centipede. So, yeah, you got all these uh, weird references. And again, like Mike said, you know, they were trying to give you a view of how things were supposed to be run, or at least a good. Uh, they were having some fun with putting some of the stuff that they were probably experiencing around the cop, the office, into a format that now people talk about all the time. But that's our deep delve into some of the names that you may be familiar with: uh, the villains, the heroes, the good guys, the bad guys, the ups and downs, uh, the. The connection they have to the actual beginning of the game and are part of why we play it the way we do today. Yep. And so that, that, that was worth some some time in. Yeah. And that constitutes our legend look at names and legends of lore of the DD game. So we hope you enjoyed. And always uh, look at us on Facebook. Like and follow and do all the fun stuff that was required. And until next time, may, may the, the dice, dice always roll in your favor. favor. We're out. See ya. <laughs>